The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 33, beginning at verse 17. We'll be reading through verse 22 this evening. The word of the Lord. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, your eyes shall see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. We will be reading through verse 8 this evening. The word of our God. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? Please keep your place here as this will be our primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. I'd like to begin this evening with a portion of God's word that was our Old Covenant reading in our morning service today. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
That was an extraordinary promise in Isaiah's day. And yet here we are this evening, not looking forward to the promise, but living in the reality. Christ, after all, has come. He has given his life for the life of the world. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven, and he sits on the throne of the universe at the right hand of his Father. Although we do not yet see all things under his feet, Jesus Christ is right now the King of kings and the Lord of lords who rules over absolutely everything. That's extraordinarily good news. But here's the question. Do you believe it? Now that's a really impolite question to ask a bunch of Christians who've gathered for evening worship. Nevertheless, I want to press that question upon you this evening. Do you believe that this is true? The present reign of Jesus Christ is an incredibly encouraging reality, but it is only encouraging to the degree that you actually believe that it is true. So please ask yourself once again, Do I really believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus is absolutely sovereign over everything that will ever take place in my own life? How can you even tell? How how do you know how much you're actually believing this besides simply giving mental assent to the fact the Bible teaches it so I know that it's true? Well, Jesus answers that question for us in tonight's parable. Look at verse 1 with me. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Our deep belief that our Father in heaven, along with the Holy Spirit and Jesus, rules over absolutely everything with exhaustive sovereignty. Every single detail that comes into our lives should be reflected in our consistent and our confident times of prayer. Uh, To state the obvious, uh, you think about the, the Lord's Prayer. When the Lord gave us the Lord's Prayer as a model, he taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Not our weekly bread, not our monthly bread. That prayer presupposes that you're going to make that request every single day. Regular, consistent, And devoted prayer to God is an ordinary marker of us actually taking God at his word, believing that he is our father in heaven who answers his children when we cry out to him, and believing that he is actually the one that controls our lives. Furthermore, both Christ's own example and that of the apostles and the apostolic church all sets before us a pattern of regular devoted prayer as an ordinary aspect of the Christian life. In fact, the very first thing that we're told about the apostolic church is this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see, this was not something they just did occasionally when they had some free time or nothing else that was more interesting to them. They devoted themselves to prayer, or perhaps more formally, they devoted themselves to the prayers. 
Now, there's some good news and some challenging news for us as we come to this parable this evening. The good news is we don't have to figure out the application. Jesus gives us the application even before he gives us the parable. We ought always to pray and not lose heart. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. Two points. Always pray, never lose heart. That's the goal of this parable. You can hardly get any more straightforward than that. Well, that's the good news. You don't need to learn Greek or to study systematic theology to know what Jesus wants us to do. Always pray, never lose heart. Yet here's where we have to be honest with ourselves and with each other. Being devoted to prayer in the modern world is very challenging for nearly all of us, right? If you're wrestling with this in your own life, you ought not to imagine that you're the exception to this rule. Being devoted to consistent and regular prayer for most of us in the modern world is actually quite challenging. As Terry Johnson points out, our civilization is largely secular and materialistic in its outlook. Uh, You all know that. You have to realize, though, how it impacts us, not just how it impacts other people. And so we're so familiar with cause and effect and that if I do this, that happens and so on, that when we look at problems in this world, we tend to think of them along these lines. I have a problem. I just need a new tool or or better methods, right? I, I need to apply the better methods with the right tool. I'll get the right outcome. It's all about what we do to get to the goal. It turns out if you have that sort of outcome, prayer, instead of becoming a regular part of our life, easily drifts off to becoming a last resort. I tried everything else, and that didn't work. Well, I might as well throw a prayer up to God and see if he'll do something for us. In fact, I think in modern America, it's easy for us to think of prayer as the opposite of doing something. I mean, we're just sitting there. Uh, Shouldn't we get up and actually apply ourselves to the problem in some other way? And it does turn out that there are, in fact, times when we could be praying when we actually ought to be doing something else. That's actually true. Um, Think about the disaster at Ai. Remember when um, Israel's going to the Promised Land for the first time and God miraculously gives them the city of Jericho, right? They march around the city, they shout, the walls come tumbling down. They take Jericho without any casualties or death on the Israeli side. And then they're going to go take this little tiny town of Ai. No need to send the whole army. This is a little little hamlet. And instead of going and taking Ai, the people of God flee before their enemies, and some of those Jews get killed in battle. It, It was a devastating experience for them, and Not surprisingly, what we do uh, next is we find Joshua going before the Lord in prayer. I just don't think that's surprising. They expect God to deliver all the people of the land to them. They get defeated before this little town, and Joshua's overwhelmed with grief. He throws dust on his head. He tears his clothing. He falls on his face before the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, and he prays. Do you remember what God says to him? God answers his prayer. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. 
Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Let me tell you, that is not the response that Joshua was expecting from the Lord. There he is praying, right? I mean, that's a good thing, isn't it? And the Lord says, get up, right? Don't ask me to bless you while your community is engaged in this horrible sin. She really was idolatry. Get up and put the idolatry away and then come back and pray. Jesus actually turns this type of issue into a general principle. Our Lord says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Right, so worship is the most important thing you do, but it's not necessarily the most urgent. And there are things in our lives in terms of rebellion and sin and broken relationships that need to take priority in time so that we can turn to worship our Lord in spirit and in truth. So yes, it does turn out that sometimes we pray when we need to be taking some sort of specific action that God wants us to do. That can happen. But the honest truth is, as Americans, we're much more prone to make the opposite mistake. To do things when we should be praying. To think I have to take the matter in my own hands and fix it, rather than resting in the Lord and his sovereign grace, acting on behalf of us and our people. Prayer, therefore, frequently gets relegated to being the last resort after everything else has failed, and it's also something that we don't persist in very much. You know, we came to the end, our plans didn't work, we throw up a couple prayers, we do it for a day or two, and then we go, oh, well, I guess that's God's will. And Jesus is telling us this prayer because he wants us to realize that is not my will. My will is, if you're asking for something lawful in faith, is that you keep on asking, you keep on seeking, you keep on knocking. Let me give you an interesting question. Well, it's interesting to me. Whether or not it's interesting to you remains to be seen. Uh, But suppose you get put on a search committee for the next pastor of this church. And you got to ask yourself this question. How much time per week do I want my next pastor to spend in prayer? Oh, that's a very practical, maybe not such an obvious question to ask yourself. How much time per week do I want my future pastor to spend in prayer? Well, I've been on the other side of that process, and I want to tell you that most churches give across this impression. Time for prayer? That's what you do on your own time. We're talking about the work of ministry that we want you to do. Isn't that interesting? Even when it comes to pastors, we tend to think of prayer as not doing the vital work of ministry, but as something else. Well, I hardly need to tell you that whatever else your vocation is, uh, that's the way most people are going to act around you. It's the sort of thing you can easily absorb yourself. Don't just sit there praying. 
go and do something. And it won't do us any good to ignore this reality. Instead, we ought to face it squarely and recognize that Jesus is calling us, not just me as your pastor, not just the elders of this church, Jesus is calling all of us, no matter what our vocations are, to live in a very different wave in the world on this. To recognize that God's in charge, that he wants to have this intimate relationship with us, and to commit ourselves to regular, diligent, and persistent prayer. And I should add, it's going to be entirely worth it if you do. Jesus was fully aware that a consistent and confident prayer life wouldn't just come naturally to many of us. This is why he teaches us so much on prayer. This is why he has given us tonight's parable. I do want to mention one more challenging thing before we launch into the parable itself. Uh, This is a challenge that comes to us in the form of a surprisingly tricky question. What is the context for tonight's parable? And normally we're reading the Bible, one of the things we always want to ask is, what's the context of this particular passage? The reason why this is a tricky question to answer is there are two totally reasonable answers to that question. First thing we have to remember is Jesus was a traveling teacher. And if you travel around teaching and you keep coming across new groups of people, you teach the same thing, in fact you use the same stories or similar stories, over and over again in many different locations. And so when you read these various passages in the Bible, such as a parable like tonight's, you ought not to imagine that Jesus only told this parable once. And that being the case, it might be best for us to think of this parable as being a self-contained unit and not worry about the context. But I want to suggest there's a better way to read this. And this is the second um, issue about what makes it tricky. If we go back and look at the previous chapter, we're at the beginning of chapter 8, we look at the end of chapter 17, it seems that at least one of the times Jesus taught this parable was right after he taught what he taught us in chapter 17. And there he's teaching us about a hardship, about a judgment that God is bringing, will, will be bringing on the world in the last days. And the hardship is very much for his disciples. Chapter 17 ends with Jesus warning his disciples and calling his disciples to sacrificial faithfulness during the very challenging period before the coming of the Son of Man. Now our Lord compares those days to the time right before Noah's flood. And he compares it to the time when God brought judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot. Consider just how forceful the language is. I'm picking up in Luke chapter 17, verse 28. We read this. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed... On that day, but the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who was in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life 
will keep it. Not only is tonight's parable told immediately after that, it ends by connecting the themes. The very last thing we're told in tonight's passage is, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Right? So that's a thematic connection as well as a connection in the ordering of the gospel. It is therefore quite reasonable to read the parable of the persistent widow against the background of our Lord's teaching in Luke chapter 17. And if we do that, we're going to see the Lord is not simply encouraging us to persist in prayer in general. Actually, he does that elsewhere. Right? So it's not a wrong idea. But he's not simply encouraging us to persist in prayer in general. He's encouraging us to persist in kingdom prayer. But the kingdom of God will keep growing precisely in the time when we're being persecuted, and that both Christ and all his people will be fully vindicated. That's really the focus of tonight's prayer, which is a good thing for us to remember in our own lives. Let let me say that again. Jesus is specifically teaching us to keep on praying both for our own faithfulness to advance the kingdom and our own vindication in the face of of worldly persecution. While it's not illegitimate to apply the point of our Lord's teaching more broadly, I think it is important in this context that we don't lose focus of what Jesus was saying at this particular point in time. We ought, therefore, to regularly be asking ourselves, first, am I praying for the advance of Christ's kingdom? Or do I simply pray for my own creature comforts and for the health and other sorts of needs along those lines of those that I care about? And second, am I praying for the vindication of Christ and his people with the absolute confidence that the Lord will answer this prayer with a resounding yes? Jesus teaches us to pray like this in a vivid and memorable way in tonight's parable. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Uh, The contrast between the two individuals is striking. Uh, The judge is a person of prestige, of power, of importance in the community. The widow represents the vulnerable in the land. In fact, widows, orphans, and sojourners are the stereotypical vulnerable people in the Bible. When when the Lord wants to make clear his concern and the concern we ought to have for the vulnerable, that's who he mentions, widows, orphans, and sojourners. For example, one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible is Psalm 68, verse 5. A father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. I love that verse. A father of the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10 we are told, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. 
giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You see how the Lord just so naturally transitions from describing himself to giving a command to his people. He's saying, be like me. You know, elsewhere the Lord says, be holy for I am holy. Now he's saying, be compassionate. Be loving to the sojourner. Be merciful. Because I, your God, am like that. Godliness means that the Lord's own concern for the vulnerable would be reflected in our concern for the vulnerable. And his obligation is pressed especially upon the judges in Israel who are appointed by God to represent him for the sake of justice. Well, the application is obvious. Since the Lord is deeply concerned that widows, orphans, and sojourners be granted both justice and mercy, shouldn't this be evident in every single judge who has the privilege of presiding in Israel on God's behalf? Nevertheless, this particular judge is a scoundrel. I mean, it's as bad as it can get. He's a scoundrel. He neither feared God nor respected man. Now, if you were looking for someone to take up your cause, you would not go and seek out somebody who neither feared God nor cared about what other people thought. Right? You wouldn't do that. So why does the widow keep coming back to him? I mean, why doesn't she go to someone else? Well, the answer is obvious. He's the one person who actually has the power to give her what she needs. It wouldn't have done her any good at all to go to some compassionate, kind neighbor who lacked the power to give her justice and simply to have uh, her or him sympathize with her. He had the power to give her what she needed. And so she went back over and over again. The unjust judge couldn't care less about justice, yet the persistent widow refuses to give up. But will her unrelenting seeking, knocking, and asking actually change anything? Well, look at verses 4 and 5 with me. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I mean, this judge doesn't care about this woman at all. He's just a selfish guy. He cares about himself. Nevertheless, he didn't want to be troubled by continually having to wrestle with turning her aside. He didn't want to hear her case, but he decided that would be better than having her knocking on his door every day. You know, it turns out that persistently asking for things is one of the critical aspects of success in many fields. Um, You know, if you get into sales, it's kind of funny, when people first get into sales, sometimes you have to actually teach them this. You actually have to ask for the sale. Uh, People often imagine that if you just talk nicely around the topic, the person's just going to volunteer to buy it. And if you do that, you're an order taker, not a salesman. And order takers don't make as much money as salesmen do. Because if you want to be a successful salesman, you have to believe in your product. You have to tell people, you ought to buy this. You have to ask for the sale. That applies to all manner of things in life. Think about how many times people got their first step on the ladder, their first opportunity, simply because they kept asking. Sometimes the very same people. 
Give me a chance to pitch. Give me a chance to pitch. Give me a chance to pitch. Well, it doesn't ground, uh, guarantee success, but if a young kid asks the coach that enough times, uh, sometime in practice at least, they're going to get a shot to go stand on the mound and throw the ball across the plate. Persistent asking, just as an ordinary course of life, is part of how we get what we want. But here's the critical thing. This isn't about us being a nuisance. The living God is calling us to that type of persistence in prayer. He is calling us to come into his presence and repeatedly ask for those things that we want so long as we're asking in accordance with God's word and we're asking in faith. Well, remember the application, right? Always pray, don't give up. It's not that complicated. Don't lose heart. This is the application of tonight's parable which God himself is giving to us. And this theme is so important to God that Jesus regularly teaches on prayer. It's a common theme, and he's commonly urging us not, you guys are always asking for stuff. You know, that never shows up anywhere in the Bible. There is not a single place in the Bible where God goes, you guys are asking for way too much. Instead, we get Jesus telling people, you know what, you still haven't really asked for anything in my name. Ask, I'm telling you. God will listen to you. Right? Keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. The Lord is teaching us that persistent and faithful prayer will be answered. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice, and he will give it to them speedily. Now, since we know that the point of the parable is that we're to cry out to God, it might be a little jarring. We've heard this parable a number of times, but probably for the original audience, that, that it seems like he's putting this unjust judge and God in the same place. Right? I mean, God is nothing like this unjust judge. But of course, the way the parable works is, if even this unjust judge will answer the repeated requests of this woman, how much more will your Father in heaven, who loves you with an everlasting love? I mean, Jesus isn't teaching us that our Father in heaven is indifferent to our needs. But if we pester him enough, eventually he'll give us what we're asking. That isn't the point. And by the way, you will not pester God into giving you what you want. If you're asking for things that are contrary to Scripture, um, I have some examples running through my head. I won't give them right now. But I, I've talked with people that were actually wanting to do sinful things. And they thought that if they kept pestering God, God would eventually give them peace in their hearts about sinning. Well, if they had peace in their hearts about sinning, it wasn't God who gave that to them. That was the callousing of their own consciences. God himself loves you, and he will speedily give us what is good for us, in particular in advancing the kingdom and vindicating his son and all his people. Two obvious, but I think fairly critical points. As I mentioned, the parable, first of all, works on the basis of comparison. If even a wicked and selfish human judge will give justice to a person who keeps asking for it, how much more will your Father in heaven? In a parallel passage, Jesus puts it like this. Ask, and it will be given to you. 
Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to him it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I mean, Jesus isn't like pulling any punches here. He's acknowledging, you guys are a bunch of sinners. But even as sinners, when your child comes, you got a little child comes and says, I'm hungry, can I have some bread? None of you would give that child a stone or a scorpion or anything else. And if you who are evil know how to do that, how much more will your Father in heaven give his children what is good for them? Second, we should remember the relationship that we have. We are not praying to an unknown God. Uh, Presumably, this widow has no relationship with this judge. I mean, they're not like, you know cousins or something. They're not in the same family. They're not in the same social circles. They are unrelated. That is not the way we come before God in prayer. We do not come to our Father in heaven as strangers. Uh, Look back actually in the text here. In tonight's parable, who is it that the Lord speedily gives justice to? Um, I think you all get this, but I'm going to say anyway, mark this well. Jesus is not saying that everybody who prays to God, God will speedily give justice to. He is not saying that. Who does he say he'll give it to? Look again at verse 7 with me. Jesus says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you he will give justice to them speedily. See, beloved, when you pour your heart out to God, you are coming to him as one of his elect. The judge of all the earth has set his love upon you since before the foundation of the world. It's an astonishing truth. He has chosen you in his beloved son, Jesus Christ, before he spoke the universe into existence. He chose you in his son, that in Christ you too would become his very own sons and his very own daughters. Therefore, when you approach the throne of heaven, you are not coming to a distant or an unknown God. You are coming to your Father who's loved you since before time began. You can have confidence that this God will give you what is good for you when you ask. Well, that's a lot of encouragement from a rather short parable, yet Jesus leaves us not with comfort, but with a pointed question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, what's the marker of that faith? This sort of prayer. Prayer for the advance of the kingdom. Prayer for our own faithfulness in the midst of hardship. Prayer that Christ and all his people will be publicly and openly vindicated. Jesus asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that sort of faith on the earth? And yet this is less of a question and more of an exhortation. Uh, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We all confess and believe this. 
It's so clearly taught in Scripture. Jesus is calling us to live out our faith by persevering prayer. That's the encouragement. Yes, Lord, I will be one of those people who is praying like this and evidencing that I have this sort of faith when Jesus comes. In particular, the Lord is calling us to persevere in prayer for the advance of his kingdom and to persevere in prayer that both Christ and all his people will be completely vindicated. The souls of the ones slain because of the word of God, as we read in the book of Revelation, they may cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. That is the type of prayer that we also enter into in this life. We join their cry. We seek that the Lord will in fact bring this current suffering to an end and vindicate his son completely so that all things may be visibly under Christ's feet. But the answer that we receive, what the saints receive in the book of Revelation, but it also clearly applies to us, is that we are to wait a little longer until the number of our fellow servants and brothers is made complete. Until that day, that great day arrives, may the Lord find us faithful and faithful in prayer. Amen.